this morning, I want to teach you how to use the word awesome correctly. I'm going to give you an example of an improper use of an all-too-common word. I love my boss. I really love him. He manages from encouragement and friendship rather than from rage and fear. And that makes, us, that makes for an exceptionally positive and pleasant work environment. One of the things that he does that creates a sort of a spirit of fellowship among his employees is called the group text. You see, we're all working together. For those of you who don't know, I'm a life insurance agent and we work together, except we never see each other. We're working in the field or we're working from home. We almost never are in the office at the same time, maybe for a monthly meeting. So, to give us a sort of esprit de corps, my boss has this group text. And whenever you sell something, you text out to the group, this is what I sold and here's how much premium it is. And everybody says, yay, yay, hooray. Now, you may have guessed, you probably don't know this field well, but you may have guessed that some insurance policies are bigger than others. So when I go out into the field and I sell an accident policy for a child and the premium is $2 a month, that doesn't shake the heavens and the earth, I promise you. But I do know, I know to a mathematical certainty that after I text out my little $2 premium, Chris is going to be on my cell phone texting out, Awesome job, Neil. As I said, I love my boss. And I smile when I get this check text saying, Awesome job, Neil, and the three or four little emojis he always attaches to it. But that's not what that word means. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. The word awesome does not mean marginally competent. And I hope that by the end of this sermon, you will all know what the word awesome really means. And can use it correctly in a sentence. Turn with me to the 11th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans 11, beginning at verse 33 to the end of the chapter. Uh, before we read this, I want to tell you that uh, over the course of my life, different passages have come to the fore as being very, very special to me. Different passages have been my favorite verse over time. I'm sure that that is your experience as well. For many years, my favorite passage in Scripture was Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. My dear wife cross-stitched that. It's hanging on the wall in my office. Find your needle. Because as of right now, my favorite passage in all of Scripture is right here. Oh, the depth of the riches. Sorry. All the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given to him that it should be recompensed unto him again? 
For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Didn't expect to cry till later. I want to spend a little minute in the context of this passage. What's been going on when Paul offers up this glorious, it's called a doxology. What's going on here? Well, we are at the top of the theological mountain. We are at the Everest of all theology in Scripture. The book of Romans is the the first systematic theology in the history of the church. And what's been going on in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is this climactic building and crescendo of glorious truth. As Paul has worked out the system of the faith and he's displayed it with such art and power and clarity. And he's looking down from the top of the mountain that he's climbed and he's seeing the great truths that come shining up out of the text. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation for everyone that believes the just shall live by faith. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? There is therefore now, how much condemnation? No, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who lived not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall a thing formed say to him who made it, Why hast thou made me thus? If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart, that God has raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For I am persuaded that neither death, I'm not going to get through this, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the great mountain he's looking down at. Those great steps up the staircase of revealed truth. And his purpose in our passage here, the purpose in these verses, is to demonstrate the appropriate response to the truth. Oh, the Astonishment, amazement, admiration, a mind completely blown by the depth of the realities he's been expounding. His heart is full. He's full of gratitude. He's full of joy. He's full of delight. He's full of reverence. He's full of worship. 
And he's giving us an example here. This is the heart of one who has seen God's truth. This is the heart of one upon whom the Holy Spirit himself has blown a life-giving breath of revelation. God has made himself known. He's made his acts known. He's made his works known. He's made his character known. He's made his attributes known. He spreads them out in his word, in the preaching of his word, in the sacrament, in the fellowship of the body. He's made these things known and the appropriate response is on your face. When you sing the sheer majesty of it. You've seen the beauty of it. It no longer condemns. It woos. It embraces. It calls. This is a frequent fixture in Paul's epistles. We, we call them the Pauline doxologies. They actually have their own name. In many of Paul's letters, when he's just made some experience, He's explored some particularly poignant idea or truth. Paul simply forgets what he's doing and breaks out into one of these glorious doxologies. For example, Ephesians 3.20, after proclaiming what he called the unsearchable riches of Christ, same word as in our text, he says this, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Or a slightly smaller one in Galatians 1.4, speaking of Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Philippians 4.20, now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Or in those great closing epistles of his life in, in the Timothys. 1 Timothy 1.17 Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There are more. But the doxology that we have before us here in Romans 11 is the fullest and most complete in all of Paul's writings, and that is as it should be, because the mountain from which he looks down upon the revelation that God has poured out in those first 11 chapters is not Everest, it is Olympus Mons. Do you know what Olympus Mons is? It is an 80-mile-high volcano on Mars. That's what we're dealing with here. Now, in biblical thought, there is never, ever, ever a divide between doctrine and practice. You know, we say that the structure of Paul's epistles runs something like this. Generally speaking, he front loads them with theology. There are exceptions, but generally speaking, the first roughly half, maybe a little bit more, of a Pauline epistle, any Pauline epistle, is going to be freight-loaded with vast amounts of doctrine and theology, with occasional allusions to ethical or moral questions. Then, in the middle of the, of the uh, epistle, there will be a therefore. And after the therefore, what you get, in large measure, you still have doctrine and theology, but what you get largely is ethics. How to use this. 
These things are true. Therefore, do this. This is the truth. Therefore, use it this way. Generally speaking, those epistles break down something like that. Because, but the breakdown can be a little deceptive because never does Paul teach doctrine in the absence of application. It does not happen. Because truth is for life. Truth transforms. The worst stench in the nostrils of God isn't the town garbage dump, it's dead orthodoxy. It's people who know a lot of doctrine and whose lives are untouched by it. They don't know it, they don't believe it, it's a file cabinet in their heads and it's closed and locked. How do I know this? I've been there. I've done that. I have sensed that stench coming off of me. That's how I know this. I speak as an expert. Doctrine and life must go together. How does that happen? That happens when doctrine transforms affections. That happens when doctrine gives us a new list of wants. What do I want? You know, we put people in jail for what they want. That what you want is the, the fundamental measure of your character. What do you desire? There are people who are in prison exclusively because, exclusively because of what they desire. We call them serial killers. They got a problem with the affections there. A drug addict has a problem with the affections. What do I want? I want my next high. It's a problem with the affections. Paul is leading us, calling us, wooing us to discover with him the joys that he has found. He's not holding some great sword over our heads saying, comply. He's saying, look at the beauty. Look at the perfections. Look at the transformative power of these truths. How they completely rearrange our entire view of reality. How everything is suffused with grace and gratitude, with beauty and love because of who our Messiah is and what He has done. There's never a divide between doctrine and practice. There's never a divide between doctrine, practice, and affections. The realities of the gospel call us to a multifaceted response. We're used to the idea that we should believe the truth. We're used to the idea that we should rest in the truth. We're even used to the idea that we should, we should obey the truth. But in addition to all these, the great Pauline doxologies call on us to rejoice in the truth. To be so wholeheartedly captivated by it that we cannot help but be in love with it and delight in it together. We share it. We celebrate it. We party over it. We fall on our faces, overwhelmed and astounded that such realities have flowed from a reconciled heaven and have bathed us, bathed us body and soul in the pleasures of His right hand forevermore. This, this is the invitation that the great apostle offers us 
Come to worship. Come embrace the lover of your soul who has spread the banquet of his graces before you. A sumptuous feast of miraculous fare purchased at a terrible and infinite cost yet freely offered to all who will partake. Come. Now that's the the affection, that's the attitude of the doxology. What's the content? Exactly what are these glories that Paul ascribes to God here in these lines? Well, we begin with the idea of knowledge. What does it matter to you that God is omniscient? Why is that a big deal? Paul begins with this idea of God's knowledge displayed for us in its depths, in its infinitude. Now, you can look at that knowledge from exactly two perspectives. From the perspective of the unreconciled unbeliever, the knowledge, the omniscience of God is a terror to the unreconciled heart. Every secret lies open. Every sin lies naked and indefensible. No excuse will do any good. But to the heart that's held in the hands of Jesus... That omniscience is there for us. It's reconciled to us. Omniscience is on our side, available for our use, available for our guidance. Nothing that perplexes us perplexes Him. Nothing that deceives us deceives Him. Nothing that clouds our horizons and makes us worry clouds his horizons. Those deeps inside the mind of the triune God are not mere data banks lost in a cloud somewhere. The apostle describes them as riches. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. That means they're resources. They're resources. In Christ, we have access to them. 1 Corinthians 1.16 says... We have the mind of Christ. That means what it says it means. We have the mind of Christ. Omnipotence, not yet. Omniscience is your personal possession. It is within your reach. Colossians 2.3 tells us what closet it's in. It speaks of Christ in whom are hid all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's a great Van Til verse for apologetics. The idea is that it's impossible to have any real, valid, genuine knowledge outside of Christ because in Christ are hid, what percentage again? All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, run with me here. You know, those of you who have sat under my teaching for any amount of time, you know that there's a hub in the theology of the Bible, that I can't get away from for more than about 17 seconds. And that is the doctrine of union with Christ. It has a centrifugal effect. It's like the theological black hole that I cannot escape even if I were light. We are united to Christ. Now what that means? We are one with Him. We have union with Christ. We are members of His body. We are the branches of His vine. We have access to if not all of the knowledge itself, 
which would be far too much for us to contain, but we have access to the practical guidance and comfort that flows from that knowledge, flows from the pages of Scripture, from the counsel of our brothers in the church. I spend some significant portion of my life on the road, not as much as I used to, but still, I spend a little time on the road. And I don't have the sense of direction that the Almighty God gave a turnip. But I have a lady who rides with me. And as long as I consult her, I don't get lost. Now, what do you suppose this lady has that I don't have? Why can I trust her when she tells me what to do? Yes, Neil's submitting to a woman. Run with that. Why can I trust this particular woman? She can see things I can't see. She sees the entire road system of the United States all at once. And yet can tell me how to find a particular address in a particular town. And she gives me the information I need and doesn't give me the information I don't need. She knows exactly how to get from here to Vancouver, British Columbia. I just want to get to Glenmora. She gives me what I need. And God does the same thing. He gives us what we need. And because we're tiny and finite, He takes His omniscience, He takes the infinitude of His resources and spoons them out with a teaspoon appropriate to our little capacities. He gives us what we need. Now, it's good to have knowledge. It's good to have access to infinite knowledge and to have exactly the kind of knowledge you need given to you at the exact time that you need it. It's good to know what the sources of that knowledge are. Holy Scripture, the Word read, the Word preached, the communion of saints, the body. But it's also good to know that unlike certain kinds of human being, this knowledge is combined with wisdom. There are wisdom and knowledge always side by side. They're never separated in God. Earth is filled with knowledgeable fools. That happens all the time. It's amazing how often that happens. I've, I have told a, a certain very precious friend of mine, you don't have to be smart to be wise. As a matter of fact, it's often disadvantageous if you're trying to be wise. You have to overcome your intelligence. You don't have to be smart to be wise. There are many full heads that know all the facts, but don't know any of the uses of those facts, don't know any of the implications of those facts, the God with whom we are in personal union doesn't have that problem. This is the God who took on our humanity, who carried our humanity into heaven, where our humanity in the person of Jesus Christ lifts human hands before the Father, and prays with a human tongue in a human language for the people that he has redeemed. Have you ever thought of that? He's not merely smart. He is wise. 
He is, get this, experienced. And not theoretically. Been here, done that, got the t-shirt. He knows experientially. He knows intimately where you are. And out of that, as He intercedes for you on the merit of His personal sacrifice before a reconciled God, the demands of whose justice have been fully met, whose decree toward you is justification and adoption, not damnation. Out of that, He gives the proper word of instruction, the proper word of warning, the proper word of comfort at exactly the right time, in exactly the right way, and by exactly the right means. Will you listen? This is the being whose wisdom is described as, in Ephesians 1.11, the counsel of his will. That's my favorite description of the wisdom of God. The idea that there is a being whose heart desires are a counselor to infinite wisdom. And that that being loves me. That there is a being what would you do? What would happen to you life, your life if you simply did anything you wanted? If you just went with the counsel of your will, what would happen? Well, we'd get by on mere disaster until we finally got to catastrophe. That's what we'd be dealing with. And yet we are personally united to one whose will is infinitely wise, whose desires constitute a perfect plan, whose eternal decree is perfect. And he has woven us into that in an inscrutable way. His word instructs, his providence illustrates, his providence confirms in both are found samples of his presence. I ask you, what could be more precious, what could be more desirous than the experienced, felt, known presence of the triune God? Now, I say that. Everybody who sees God in Scripture is scared out of their mind, without exception. And yet they desire that fear. They're willing to suffer that fear, with some exceptions. Because the presence of God is precious to them. Who has known the mind of the Lord? His judgments are unsearchable. Another word that Paul repeatedly uses to describe who Jesus Christ is. To describe what the triune God does. Inscrutable ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Uh, the last couple of years, in my own theological development, I have placed a higher and higher value on the attribute of God called incomprehensibility. The doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God. Uh, when I was younger, the incomprehensibility of God irritated me. I didn't like it. What do you mean you ain't, what do you mean you ain't telling? I want to know. Indeed, in my extreme youth, 
My position was, I ain't doing what you say till you tell me what it means. I'm not going to obey you until you have met my standards. And when you've met my standards, then we'll talk. But as I've grown, again, like that sweet lady who follows me around in the car, or more accurately leads me around in the car, I can't handle all the data. I can't understand everything God is doing. Can't do it. And you could triple my IQ and it wouldn't make any difference. Maybe one or two more facts would make a little more sense. And I keep going back to my two favorite theologians. My two favorite theologians who have taught me so much over the last few years. Who knows who my two favorite theologians are? Petey and Norman are my two favorite theologians. Okay, I love Petey and Norman. I love what they teach me because, you see, I go through my day and Petey and Norman watch absolutely every bit of my day because good things might happen. Daddy does providentially wonderful things like drop food. They watch my every move. Now, there is nothing that I do in a day that makes a lick of sense to Petey and Norman. I pick up a book, and I stare at it for a long, 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 long time. That action for their minds is, what's the word? Incomprehensible. I go get in this box that's got wheels on it. Now, they love that box, but they have no idea what it's really for. They think it's to to take them on a road trip. They love to ride around in the car. But the idea of going someplace, where is there to go? I have my home. What else would I need? Even the act of opening a dog food can is shrouded in mystery to them. But because they are good dogmaticians, they understand that in the middle or out of the depths of all this incomprehensibility that Daddy participates in all day long, they get everything they need. They understand that Daddy loves them. They understand that they're going to be cared for, that they're going to be cherished, even if they can't sweat the details. Now, I'm probably twice as intelligent as those dogs. On a good day, maybe three times as intelligent. Okay? Two or three times. How much more intelligent is God than you? How big is that gap? I'm about this far over the head of my dogs, and my whole world is in principle, in principle, out of their reach. We are dealing with infinite wisdom, infinite knowledge. It's unsearchable. And nobody gave it to him. What does the verse say? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or get this, the joke. Who has given to him that it may be recompensed unto him again? What does God owe you? What have you provided for him that he's got to pay you back? Nobody gave him anything. What he has, he has within himself by nature. He has it intrinsically. He has it without help. How could anybody 
ever advise the being whose mind has held the entire structure and history of the universe in all of its actuality, in all of its potentiality, in all of its relationships, in all of its interconnectedness, in all of its interacting influences from the supragalactic to the the subatomic level, inside the Planck time, and across however many billions of billions of billions of years his universe will stretch across its endless sky. Who has embraced the whole of this in his mind beginninglessly from eternity past and will know its every detail when the last quark of the last proton decays into non-existence? To that thing, to that being, to that God, the creature of a day would give advice, would offer to, get this, correct, would edit the universe? No. Your appropriate posture is prostration in worship. Delighting in the swarm of mercies by which such a God lifted you out of your rebellious misery and made you his friend. Made you his child. Or who? Who hath first given to him and shall be recompensed unto him again? Complaint and bitterness and unhappiness die here. They die here. Rejoice. You are owed nothing. Yet you receive life and breath and food and shelter and comfort and friendship and family and a place in the very body, in the very flesh of a man who is God. You are, by nature, fleeting as a whisper and fragile as gossamer. But you will survive death itself. You will watch the end of the universe in such company as this. And he will break the scales that weighed galactic clusters with the weight of the glory that you will see. And you will never, 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 never find the bottom of those great depths out of which you are loved. Well, where can he go? Where do you go from that, having seen that, having experienced that, having declared that? You go to a totally theocentric view of all of reality. God is at the center, at the edges, at the bottom. You do not get away from him. There is nothing that isn't sacred. There is nothing that does not belong to him. Verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things. The most fundamental reality in all of reality is that reality is about God. Let me run that by you one more time. You can memorize this. The most fundamental reality in all of reality is that reality is about God. When I was a kid, I was reading an astronomy book that described the solar system as the sun and assorted debris. That's physically accurate. Our solar system is the sun and assorted debris. Creation is 
God and assorted debris. That's the position that we're dealing with. And what does Paul say to bring that out? He says that Paul is the source, not Paul, God is the source of all things. For of him. It's a genitive of source. And through him, he's the sustainer of all things. We are not deists. God didn't just make the heavens and the earth and say, I'm going to Acapulco, y'all have a good time. He didn't just go on vacation. He stays involved exhaustively. There's not a single subatomic particle that is not under his personal second-by-second supervision. There are no maverick molecules in the world. He's the source of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. Of him and through him, what's the next phrase? And to him are all things. He is the purpose of everything. He is not something added in on the side to a life that made sense without him. He's not an option. You don't make room for God. God is the primary reality and everything else is built around that. That's where scripture as a whole is coming from. And Paul is celebrating that reality with this overwhelming declaration of the glory of God. It's his universe it's his time it's his space it's his matter it's his energy it's his purposes it's his truth it's his reality and everything that we will ever know is simply God's thoughts a biblical faith is not my life wasn't working too well so I added God and now everything's better A biblical faith is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And my life is a tiny little piece of that working out. Of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. And that's where he finishes, glory. All glory. For how long? Forever. Forever. And no matter how many stomptillions of years we give him glory, all we'll be doing is discovering more of who he is. And that never ends. This idea of glory. The Greek word doxa is a translation of the, translates the Hebrew word kavod. And kavod is really what we need to look at. Okay? It's the Hebrew idea of glory. And what it means is weight or heaviness. Metaphorically, it gives us the idea, not of physical gravity, but you know, you, you hear about a person who has gravitas. What does that mean, when a person has gravitas? You've seen silly, flippant little people, and then you've seen people who walk in a room and you know, that guy's important. That person matters. When that person speaks, something profound has been said. When that person acts, something overwhelming has been done. Now jack that up to the power of infinity. We're dealing with the glory, the weight. And there's another aspect of the meaning of this word that has to do with radiance, brightness, majesty, and of course awe. And all of these things are associated, especially in the New Testament, with the presence of the living God. Things that have glory are matters of weight 
and gravity. They are important. They're not trivial. They require your full, undivided attention. They require your total engagement. Nobody was eating a sandwich at the foot of Mount Sinai. Nobody was reading a book when Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Nobody was staring at a cell phone when the transfiguration happened. The, the people who were witnesses to the presence of the living God are fully, irresistibly, inescapably engaged with the reality of that event. They cannot break away from it because this is who God is. This is where our apostle is trying to take us. He wants us to pay attention to that which is ultimately glorious, ultimately important. He wants us consumed with a desire to enjoy this, a desire to honor this, a desire to delight in this. It's not a side issue. It is a reality-defining issue. It creates everything else. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, you might be, if you're thinking, you've got a problem here. If you're thinking, you're saying, wait a minute. God contains all this glory within Himself. How can I give Him more? You can't. You got that right. That's a good problem to have. What you can do is discover the glory of God for yourself which you do in part by worshiping, worshiping Him. You can also reveal the glory of God. And it's tempted for a nerd like me to say, the way I reveal the glory of God is by teaching about it. That's about 1%. It does have an impact, yes. But the way we reveal the glory of God best is by rejoicing in our transformation according to that glory. Paul in Philippians 3 says, the goal of his life, that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. What's he saying? The idea is very simple and absolutely terrifying. God is going to transform you into something other than what you were. It is a transformation that makes a gigantic and unrecognizable difference in who you are. I've, I've taught in my Sunday school class that what, what emerges from this transformation is not just a man with a cleaned up life. That's not it. It's an entirely different life form, a completely different kind of organism. We call ourselves Homo sapiens. Ironically enough, wise man. But I have come up with a name for the kind of species that God creates when He changes by the power of His Holy Spirit who we were. When He effectually calls us and gives us the new birth, when He works repentance and faith in us, when he transforms us and makes us into something else, the first thing that happens is the old man dies. And something new emerges. A being that I have called Homo Celestis. 
man of heaven. Born from heaven. Created by a new work of God. A completely different kind of person. And what emerges from that is a whole new set of desires, a whole new set of priorities, a completely new definition of what is important and what is desirable. The transformed man who's been breathed upon by the Holy Spirit, who's been given a life he did not have and did not want, That man now submits joyfully to the fact that his life is about his creator. That man now submits joyfully because he had been at war with everything that was good. He had rejected everything that this God was. He had been in love with his own autonomy. It's my life. I'm going to do with it what I want. Oh, that's gone. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own. That's the, I mean, there's, there's more to the answer than that. But I am not my own. That's a comfort. That's a joy. That's a delight. I'm not my own. I don't belong to myself. I'm reminded of a, a, a story that Jay Adams told in one of his books about a pretty, 20, a pretty young 26-year-old girl who was a party girl who showed up for counseling in his office. And as they hacked their way through... Her disaster of a life. It was a disaster. She had a sudden epiphany. And without really thinking about it, which is the best way to have these epiphanies, it dawned on her and she said to Adams, Wait a minute. You mean I don't have to do what I want? She was not far from the kingdom. Your autonomy is garbage. Your autonomy is the road to hell. And your autonomy will give you plenty of horrible experiences between now and when you get there. And what the apostle is saying is, live your life as if it did not belong to you. Rejoice that your life has been rescued mostly from you. It's also been rescued from the wrath of a provoked God. But it's been rescued from you. Delight in this infinite wisdom that you now have access to. Delight in this infinite knowledge that you now have access to. Delight in this glory which will be spread in all of its beauty before you forever and ever and ever. And you will be consumed by its beauty forever and ever and ever. And the whole concepts of happiness and joy will be completely redefined in line with this vision of infinite perfection into which you are embraced and called and loved. All the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his past past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given unto him that it may be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Do you know the definition of the word 
awesome now. Lord our God, we thank you for the privilege that we enjoy to be called into the presence of such a God as you are. We pray that you would would work in our hearts the affections that are worthy and appropriate for such a being as this. We pray that you will transform our eyes to see reality differently, that these beauties will not escape us, will not be lost upon us, that you will refine us in a way that we will know you and be able to know you more deeply and better. Increase, Lord, our delight, our joy in what you have revealed of yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen.